he was diagnosed very, very recently with stage four lung cancer, thought he had pneumonia. So we've been praying for him all week. In the first service, I asked him to continue to pray, and we did. While I was preaching, we got the word that he had passed away. So he's now with the Lord. And uh, it's a very short time frame. Five weeks ago, he and I were standing out here talking. And uh, you just don't know what's coming, do you? You just don't know. So by God's grace, he's with the Lord. And now uh, Lauren and the family have the, the, the long journey now of making sense of all this. So rather than praying for John and Lauren, we're going to pray for Lauren. Don't need to pray for John anymore. So let's stop and pray for Lauren and her family. Lord, I do pray for Lauren. Uh, Lord, uh, first of all, let me say thank you for John and his life. We will be celebrating a memorial service to honor him. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his faithfulness. Lord, um, just in the year, year and a half, I've gotten to know them. I am richer because of it. And thank you, Father, that uh, he didn't have a sustained and painful uh, end, that you were gracious to him. I pray, Lord, for Lauren and the family, the kids and the, the uh, siblings and all the people that are starting to pour into town. I pray, Lord, that you would be with them right now. Be very gracious to them. Lord, be merciful. They're hurting. Help us as a church to know how to love them well and to help them walk through this time. And Father, I pray for other people in our church who are hurting, who I'm not aware of. I know there are more than just them. I pray that your grace would continue to be profound in their lives and sufficient. Thanks, God, for caring about us as your people. We are very appreciative. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're looking in James, and we're looking specifically at what it means to be wholly committed to God. So we're not doing a study of all of James. We're actually looking at the four Old Testament examples or figures that he uses. He uses Abraham, Rahab the prostitute, Job, and Elijah. And we're surprised by uh, Rahab the prostitute. I just love it that God steps into people's mess. It's okay. He steps right into it and is very gracious and uses them anyway. We're going to look at Rahab next week. Today it's Abraham. But last week I started with a couple of questions, which I'm going to ask variations of this question from week to week. Um, what is keeping you from being wholly committed to God? What is it? What's keeping you from being wholly committed to God? If you can identify what the obstacle is, then you have a chance of doing something about it. Or maybe we could express it this way. Do you really believe that God is good in all that he does? It's a hard question. Do you really believe that God is good in all that he does? I asked, had a chance to talk with last week with uh, John and Lauren and sat with them. I asked John, I said, John, you're not dead yet. So what's the Lord teaching you? Make me a better pastor. Tell me the journey you're on. I, I probably am not going to go on your journey, so I need to hear about it. What's he teaching you? And he talked for a while about what he's learning about faith. Isn't that great? When I get to the end of life, uh, I don't want to give up. Not at all. I want to keep asking the question, how am I growing? I asked Lauren, what are you, uh, what are you learning uh, during all of this? And she said, well, I've learned two things. I have learned that I love, love my husband a lot more than I realize I did. Isn't that great? Aren't we glad it's not the opposite? <laughs> Which could be true for some of you, by the way. I love my husband more than I realize, and I realize my faith is genuine. It's real. Which raises the question, why does God test your faith? It's not for his benefit. It's for yours. 
It's for yours. I can't wait to get back down there and spend time with her and just to hear what's happening now. It's for your benefit that you test your faith. In other words, the question we're asking is, what does it mean to live out your faith? This is a hard world, no question about it. It's a challenging world. Every one of you has challenges that, that work really hard to keep you from being faithful, to really living out your faith. And so most of us find places where we can do it fairly well, but there's also places in our life where we don't do it very well at all, aren't there? You know what I'm talking about. I don't know your areas. I have my own mirror to look in. So the question we're asking is, what about those areas where it's difficult, where it's a challenge? So we're going to look at these four figures to see what they tell us, what example they give us, and how James uses them to understand our own faith and what it means to be faithful people. So we're going to start with Abraham. Abraham first appears on the scene in Genesis chapter 12. It's after the flood. It's after the Tower of Babel. So you know the basic storyline, Genesis 1 and 2, we have creation. God made two people. His desire was to fill the earth with his glory, and that would come through all of their offspring. And uh, ah, they went the wrong way. He did the most dignifying, respectful thing anyone could do. He gave them choice. Is there anything more respectful than to give another person choice? And that's what he did. He gave them choice. He could have started over again, but chances are he would have ended up in the same spot. And God isn't a God who likes to force people into any, any response. He really desires to create a heart within his people that will love him freely. So he did the unthinkable. He allowed us to continue to live and put in place the most crazy, amazing, counterintuitive plan of redemption you could ever think of. We are unique among the religions in our concept of redemption and how God goes about it. I would have never thought about it. If I had had a million years, I would have never thought to come up with the plan he came up with, but that's what he did. So Genesis 12, with the call of Abraham, is the beginning of his redemptive plan to go back and rescue. Come back and rescue us. By the way, Eve was told in the garden, as part of the curse, there's a little glimmer of hope that your seed is going to destroy this serpent, this enemy. So I can just picture her saying, really? I'm going to have a child, and he's going to reverse what we just said. I don't know what it'd be like to be in perfect relationship with God without sin, insecurities, struggles. I don't know what that would be like. And then in one second to have it disappear because we disobeyed the Lord. I don't know what that's like, but she did. So I can only imagine her hope. So she gets pregnant. Can you just feel the hope? Here it is. Here's the one. Here's the one. Wow. What a disappointment that number one kills number two. Neither of the first sons were the answer. Maybe it's number three. Maybe it's number four. Maybe it's number five. And you start countdown and you start waiting. So Abraham represents God's beginning of that plan to redeem a lost world. And it's not just us, by the way. It's all of creation. It's all of us. Paul later on says all of creation is groaning. Ugh. Oh, under the weight of brokenness, just waiting for God to fulfill his redemptive plan, all of creation. So 
Abraham represents God's intent to redeem the world and reach out to the nations. Listen to these words, Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation, God speaking to Abraham, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Here it is. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That's us, by the way. God could have just started over again. He chose not to. He chose not to. Abraham would become the one through whom God would bless the nations. This, my friends, is the gospel. Listen to Galatians 3. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. And here it is. All the nations will be blessed through you. So we are looking at the gospel right here. This fantastic news that God did not forget us or the creation. He didn't forget us. Emmanuel, God with us. Later on this fall, we'll start Advent, Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. He did not forget. So all the way back, way, way, way early in the scriptures, we see this. Later in Abraham's life, in Genesis 22, he decides to test Abraham for the sacrifice of his son. Now, I've said before, why would, uh, why would, he, test, why would he test Abraham? It's not for God's benefit. It's for Abraham's benefit. It is. One of the questions that is often asked, um, I suspect several of you have asked it over time, why me? Why did God do this? And you know what one of the most wonderful truths in Scripture is? God doesn't have to ask you if it's okay to test you because he already knows the outcome. He already has that much confidence in you. He didn't ask Job. That's what Job tells us. God didn't ask Job. He felt free to test him because he already knew. He already had confidence in Job's faith. And Job is the one that grew through that. We're going to see Job a little bit later in James. So this involved the sacrifice of his son. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, to a mountain in the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there. Now, it's easy for us in our 21st century perspective to, to kind of wrestle with this and that not, not be sure what's going on here because why would God ask him to sacrifice his son? That doesn't make sense to us. If he asked any of us to do it, we wouldn't do it. We just wouldn't. But you have to remember, we don't live in Abraham's time. So way back in this period of time, it was not that uncommon to sacrifice children. We have, we have evidence that several of the nations did it. They would sacrifice their children, one of their children at least, to the gods in the hope of appeasing the gods. God had not yet said, don't do that. Now, you think it would be common sense, but it's not common sense. Morality is not common sense. Morality is learning what the Lord desires of us. And the other side of that, morality is learning that whatever God asks us to do, it's in our best interest. So when he says to be generous, it's because it's in your best interest to be generous. So in the very beginning, God had not yet said, don't sacrifice children. So he sacrificed, I mean, he told Abraham to sacrifice his son. Now, the scriptures don't tell us this. This is purely my theory. Um, but I wonder if Abraham didn't have a twinkle in his eye when the time came. He said, all right. Let's go. 
Because when you look at the story in Genesis 22, you're kind of flying along as you often are in Scripture, and then all of a sudden you slow way down. And you come down, and the details begin to give you a lot of information. He took the wood. He bound his son. He walked up the mountain. How many servants did he have? All of that. Gives you all these details in the story, which makes you think that this is important. And guess what? There's no hint that Abraham is surprised or balking at this because this might not have been uncommon for him. So maybe what happened is maybe he had a twinkle in his eye and said, all right, I know lots of people who sacrifice their children and their children stay dead. Watch what happens when I sacrifice mine. Because God promised that it was through this one son that he was going to bless the entire world. So what does Hebrews 12 say that we read together? He believed that God would raise him from the dead. And so, in effect, that's what happened. Because God stopped him right at the last second. So the real test for Abraham, I think, was that God was going to fulfill his promise. And he was going to sacrifice his son. By the way, Abraham, by this time, would have been probably about 115, 120 Isaac, his son, is probably 15 to 20, a teenager, old enough to carry a bunch of wood on his back up a mountain, so he's at least that big. And so who could win the physical strength test, a 15 to 20-year-old boy or a 120-year-old man? That gives us a hint that Isaac trusted his father. In other words, he allowed himself to be bound and put on the altar And this becomes a picture of Jesus later on, willing to let himself be put up on the cross. It's a wonderful story. It doesn't make sense in our world with our ethics because we have a different set of ethics today. Praise God for that. I'm glad God said don't sacrifice children. It all stopped when he said that. So Abraham was tested. And the question is, would he follow through? The result of his unwavering faith and obedience was a restatement of God's blessing on him and his offspring. Listen to these words. I'm in Genesis 22, verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, this is all caps, L-O-R-D, this is this one true living God that we believe in. So I swear by myself, declares this one true living God, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all the nations on the earth will be blessed because you obeyed me. Okay? So the Lord responds. He responds that Abraham's blessing is now based on his actions because you have done this. Verse 16, the promise, which was originally grounded in the will of God, he says, I will bless you. That was the original promise. So the original promise, which was grounded solely in the will of God, has now been transformed so that it's grounded in both the will of God and the obedience of Abraham. Abraham's obedience has now been incorporated into the divine promise. Abraham could have said no. And he chose to say yes. So this promise, as God moves into the world to bring about redemption, 
he begins to bring into that promise the faithfulness of people that are willing to do what he asked to do. Boy, that's a big risk on God's part to place that much confidence in us because we often fail him. And he knows that. And he does it anyway. Thus, Abraham comes to be, be, be held in high esteem throughout Jewish history. His faithfulness and his commitment to God play an increasing role in understanding God's intent to bless the nations. It became important that we start to obey. Additionally, his descendants are to be just uh, to be just as faithful and committed to God if they are to enjoy the full benefits of the promise made to Abraham. That's how Jewish theology kind of developed this. In other words, in early Jewish literature, Abraham was argued to have been declared righteous based on some combination of faith and obedience. Hmm. And then Paul comes along, throws everything into a tailspin. Paul did not mind creating a mess. So Paul comes along. Now, Paul's story, and this is, we're going to get to James in just a second because it all comes together with James. Paul's, uh, Paul's story is really simple. He was uh, murdering Christians. He was raised from the beginning to be a disciple of Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers in Israel's history. Probably had whole large segments of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible memorized. Um, and he really did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and so he's out persecuting Christians to shut this thing down and get them back to Orthodox Judaism. And then, lo and behold, in one second, on the road to Damascus, he learns the truth when he said, the blinding light, he said, uh, a voice came from heaven and said, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord, this one true God? And he said, I am Jesus. In one second, he learned he had completely misinterpreted whole sections, if not all, of Old Testament theology regarding the coming of Jesus. He totally missed it. Now, by God's grace, none of us ever go through that kind of trauma. Our theology develops slowly over time. All of us. Every one of us here has bad doctrine in our belief system. Everyone. Otherwise, it wouldn't be changing. So as we keep learning and growing and changing our mind about things, our theology gets better and better. But for Paul, it happened that fast. So if I understand Galatians correctly, he went to a desert for two or three years, and he just hung out, tried to make sense of it. He makes a point of saying in Galatians that I did not receive what I'm about to teach you from any human. I received it from the Lord himself. After that, he says in Galatians, um, uh, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. I took along Barnabas and Titus. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. He said earlier that that's Peter and uh, James, the Lord's brother. I said before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in my race in vain. So once he started to figure it out, being an incredible theologian, the best theologian in the Christian church, by the way, I think, he went back to Jerusalem and he laid out his case. He said, here's what I'm teaching before James and Peter. And they said, great, that's great. So Paul comes onto the scene, and the first thing he does is he severs the traditional Jewish link between works and righteousness, and he does it very clearly. He argues that it was Abraham's faith rather than his obedience that led him to be declared righteous, and he uses Abraham as an example. It's in Galatians 3 and Romans 4. This opened the way for Paul to declare that the true seed of Abraham are those who show the same kind of faith as Abraham. So Galatians 3, verse 7. Understand then 
that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So he separated this faith from obedience and said a person is justified by faith alone. The true people of God are those who demonstrate faith irrespective of ethnicity or circumcision. It's not because you're Jewish. He's the, perhaps the first one to introduce this. Now, I believe Galatians and James were written before the Jerusalem Council, represent the two earliest books in our New Testament canon. They're written before the gospel. He didn't have the gospels to go look at. So he wrote Galatians, and then James wrote James, and they're dealing with the same issue. The very first issue facing the church was, is circumcision necessary? What part of the law do we need to keep? If they've all been raised as good Jewish boys, what part do we need to keep? So James and Paul are both arguing on the same thing. Now, Paul, James comes along, and we're going to show you in just a minute, and says something striking. Paul says, so you see, a person is saved by faith alone. James says, so you see, a person is not saved by faith alone, but by works. James 2.24. Two verses that do this. Are they in opposition? How do you resolve it? It's one of the early problems we give our young New Testament majors. Figure that one out. It's, it's wild that they both wrote about the same time, and they argued this. Um, but remember, don't forget this one piece. James had, I mean, Paul had already gone to Jerusalem and laid out his presentation of the gospel to James and to Peter. They're not contradicting each other. They're giving us two sides of a coin that are wonderful for the early church to make sense of what does true faith look like. So Abraham and James, let's get to there. James concludes, I'll come back to how they resolve in just a minute. James concludes chapter 1, where I finished last week, with we should keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. And then all of a sudden, he says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, but not show favoritism. Whoa. Talk about an abrupt shift in topic. Don't be polluted by the world. Oh, by the way, don't show favoritism. Don't be partial. He's asking the question of whether partiality can really exist alongside of faith. He uses the rich and the poor as examples. He then brings favoritism alongside of both adultery and murder as examples of what it means to be unfaithful. Listen to these words. Verse 8, James 2. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, which is, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. If you show favoritism or partiality. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. These are quotes out of the Sermon on the Mount. He's quoting Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's referring back to Jesus. Okay? Goes much further into the Old Testament, but this is language right out of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is really important because this all has to come together. Because what Jesus does on the Sermon on the Mount is breathtaking. It's countercultural. The world had never heard of it. He said, if you, you've heard it said not to commit murder, I tell you, if you hate your brother or sister, you have already committed murder. There's no way to overstate how countercultural and, and uh, different and unique that was. Because in a shame and honor context, people didn't care about what you thought. They care about how you lived your life. 
And Jesus takes the problem. The problem is not our behavior. The problem is the inside of the person. I think he just created the modern science of social sciences, psychology and psychiatry. He took the problem to the inside of the person. I think he was the first person in world history to do that. So what did he do? He raised the standard to an impossible level. Impossible. How many of you have ever been angry with a person? Let me see your hands. My hand's up. I think all of you just raised your hand. Don't you know that murderers are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6? And you just all confess to be murderers. According to Jesus' standard. It's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than it is to enter the kingdom of God. Can a, I mean, <laughs> thought I got that backwards. Easy for the cam, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? Is it even possible? No. It is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I could go on and on. Every place Jesus taught, he raised the standard to an absolutely impossible level every step of the way. That means you have no hope except for one thing. That only leaves room for one thing that's called grace. If God does not appear on the scene with grace, as Paul says, we of all people are most to be pitied. Hopeless. So he raises a standard. James comes back to this and he argues this. He places favoritism or partiality on the same plane as adultery and murder. Thus, partiality cannot exist alongside of true faith. It just can't. Paul, James then goes on to argue that true faith requires action. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith, but they have no deeds? Can such faith save them? What's the answer? No. Suppose a sister or brother is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That's the core of his argument. That's the core of his argument. It's in this context that we find Abraham. Abraham is used in verse 20. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see, now here's the startling verse that counters Paul. At least seems to. You see that people are justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Wow. He concludes apparently the opposite of Paul. It looks like it. Paul has the exact same Greek construction, but in reverse. You see that a person is saved by faith alone. You see that a person is not uh, justified by faith, by what they do, but by faith, uh, but by their works, not by faith alone. So James argues. Are they in disagreement with each other? Remember, they had already met and talked through their theology and their presentation of the gospel. 
So how do these two things come together, faith and works? This is part of our Protestant tradition. Martin Luther, faith alone, through Scripture alone. It's so embedded in our culture that we don't know what to do with James. We don't know how to bring works into it. The key to understanding the phrase, I think, is a little, misunderstanding this idea, is a little tiny phrase made by James. You see that Abraham's faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete. It's a pivotal word in New Testament theology, I think. His faith was made complete by what he did. Faith alone, I believe, allows for a person to be given life and regenerated. But if that faith is real, it will begin to produce works. As Mark said to me, we were talking about it this week, the difference between Paul and James is one second. That's all it is. What was begun through faith is completed or matured through works. For James, faith and works are inseparable. By the way, they are for Paul. Just after Paul makes a statement in Romans and Galatians that uh, you're justified by faith alone, he then goes right on and begins to talk about how important it is to live out your faith. Works play a vital role. If you do not have works, that's an evidence that your faith is not valid. It's not real. So James says he completes the puzzle. Faith is what allows you to enter into a relationship with the Lord God. But that very same faith, if it's authentic, begins to change you. That's where we are unique among world religions. You don't become something different. You become something better. We use technical language. You're being transformed into the image of Christ. What does that mean? Christ is the perfect human. That means we are being transformed into what it means to be a perfect human because in a broken world, we lost that. So we're learning what it means to be gracious. We're learning what it means to be forgiving. You can forgive anybody. I don't care what they have done to you. It is purely your choice. You can be generous with anybody. I don't care how much you have. You can be affectionate, compassionate, loving with anyone. You can be repentant. I don't care what sin you've committed. See what I mean? That's what work says. Works leads you to become a better human. The world should look at us and say, that church is fantastic. Every time I see them, they're loving people. They're forgiving one another. They're not the ones suing each other. They're the ones that are showing grace. I want something. I want that. How do I become part of that? If your faith is genuine, James argues, works will accompany your walk such that you become more mature, lacking in nothing, which is how it starts in James 1-2. Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That's the goal. That's why your faith is tested. That's the reason. Does it hurt? Yes, it hurts. Yes, it does. Abraham thus becomes a perfect example for Paul and for James because he, he demonstrates faith 
and receives righteousness back, and then he becomes part of the divine promise through his obedience. He said yes, not no. So the use of Abraham allow, uh, follows James's concern for his audience. He starts with a question of partiality, which may seem trivial to many of you. It's not. James is elevating it to the level of murder, which you've all admitted to being guilty of, just to remind you. Okay? Judging without mercy, he said, leads to judgment without mercy. The only way to be vindicated is through faith expressed in our works. Now, look at the range of what James has covered. At one end, he's talking about feeding and clothing a fellow believer, not showing partiality. At the other end, he's talking about the trauma of putting a loved one's life on the line, the sacrifice of Abraham's son. That's a big range. Your faith is sufficient by God's grace to walk you through that range. The faith that pertains to Jesus Christ embraces every aspect of life. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that you're going through that you can't make it well. Absolutely nothing. If you're struggling with anything, come talk to us. So what's keeping you from being wholly committed to God? Let me ask the question a different way. Where, are there, where in your life is a place where you are unable to live out your faith. Every one of us has one. Where is it? Where in your life is the, the place where you just can't quite get there? What's the obstacle? And we as a church need to keep working on those. You're going to find them. If you find them, come. You've heard me say many times, don't be ashamed if your marriage is in trouble. Every marriage worth a salt gets into trouble at least once. Been there, done that. Don't be ashamed if you have a child you don't get along with. Maybe they're rebellious. That's okay. Don't be ashamed if you're a student who cheated on an exam. I've had lots of students cheat on exams in the, in the classroom. I start my classroom now with this. You know, if you decide, if, you're, if you feel convicted, I mean, if you are tempted to cheat, don't do it. If you still are tempted to cheat, still don't do it. If you are still tempted to cheat after that, you might pray about it, but I don't care if you do or not, just don't do it. If after that, you still are tempted to cheat, come talk to me and tell me that and don't do it. Now, if you cheat, if you cheat before I turn in the final grades, come talk to me, I know how to show redemption. If you, God convicts you after you've turned, I've turned in the final grades, I don't want to know about it. God is gracious, and that's between you and him. I love you just the way you are. When I was employed at Dallas Seminary, we had a professor come forward and say, I cheated on an exam 35 years ago. <laughs> Did you repent? Yes, great, let's move on with life. There's nothing that you're going through that should cause so much shame that you can't come forward and say, I'm in trouble. Or my family's in trouble, or my marriage, or my career, or whatever it is. If we don't have the words of life, who does? What's keeping you from being wholly committed to God? Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for his great love for us. Thank you for Abraham. Lord, I suspect that Abraham didn't even have a clue that he was going to be used in so many ways, so powerfully, down through thousands of years, and yet his faithfulness was so simple, and you used it. Thank you for that. I pray, God, 
I pray that you would help us as a church to remove those obstacles, to continue the journey forward to maturity, to the cross, Lord, to continue the journey forward to maturity, to becoming like Christ, to becoming a true human who can express our love and compassion, our affection, our generosity in all the ways that you've asked us to. Thank you. Help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen.